My name is Nicola, aka Socrates, and you're watching Singularity FM, the place where we interview the future. If you guys enjoy this show, you can help me make it better in two ways. One, you can go on iTunes and write a brief review. And two, you can come to singularityweblog.com and make a donation. Today, my guest on the show is Marek Rosa. Marek is founder and CEO of Keen Software, which is an independent video game development studio. After the success of uh, his game titles such as Space Engineers, Marek founded and personally funded Good AI with $10 million and was finally able to pursue his lifelong dream of building general artificial intelligence. Most recently, Marek launched the General AI Challenge with a fund of $5 million and he wrote a very interesting and uh, descriptive uh, guest blog post on singularityweblog.com that I recommend our viewers and listeners check out for sure. So. Without further ado, welcome, Marek. Hello, Nicola. So, uh, Marek, if you were to introduce yourself in a couple of sentences, how would you do that yourself? Who is Marek Rosa? Uh, so, I, am, I started as a programmer, and that was my passion, and also science and technology and future and sci-fi, all those things. And, uh, like, one of the driving forces in me is... Uh, like curiosity, like I want to know uh, why things work, they work, and or what is like behind the horizon that we can see and so on. And uh, I'm just like uh, going after this goal or like I'm trying to satisfy one little piece of curiosity after another. And uh, you introduced me uh, nice, nicely. And uh, yeah, that's it. Like we are working here at GoodAI on developing a general AI or getting closer to general AI because we believe that it's a tool like a leverage that can basically leverage every other tool or help us to actually get to either singularity or better futures and to better understand the, the universe. So we are working on general AI. That's, that's fascinating work and of course the reason why you're here on my show. But before we get there, let us talk a little bit about the journey that you had uh, to get to to be able to afford to invest ten million dollars in artificial general intelligence, so tell us first about how you got interested in AI and or gaming, and which one was your first love and why? Uh, when I was fourteen or fifteen, I started to programming, and I started at that age because before that I didn't have computer at home, so I couldn't do programming. So I was just reading books and, you know, doing that stuff. So when I started programming, one of the first things was probably AI that got me interested because I realized that I want to create some kind of bot or robot or something like this that can communicate with me, that can uh, do things for me uh, and, and so on. And uh, I realized that uh, if we automate intelligence, uh, we can we would be able to scale it up basically infinitely and uh, use it for whatever we need. So basically, instead of me trying to invent spaceships or uh, like uh, medicine for cancer or medicine for like long life or anything like this, I can actually build AI and then the AI will invent all these other things. So that's why I think it's a leverage. And uh, 
So this was the main reason, and basically it stays like that, like it didn't change, only the details change. And uh, regarding the gaming, I think I started maybe in parallel, but the first games that I was making were just some simple things. And uh, back then, because it's 20 years ago, basically, uh, I was considering two career paths. One was that uh, I will be uh, working on AI, you know, like a scientist or in academia or something like this. And the other was that I will be uh, making games and make some money and then I can actually fund my own AI research and be more independent and so on. Or there was maybe even other route and this would be that uh, I would start with AI and business as first thing and then, you know, do uh, something next. But uh, the viability of AI making some money 20 years ago didn't look promising to me. The game uh, did seem more promising to me and also at that age, I was more willing to work on games because it was just fascinating. So I started with the games first and put AI just on some like, you know, somewhere in the backside of my, my brain. And uh, so I was working on games and, uh, and also other things uh, like other programming projects. And a uh, couple of years ago, uh, finally, after some learning, you know, and like failures and things like that, uh, finally, we made uh, Space Engineers game and this became successful. And from there, I realized like, okay, I finally I hit that that point, you know, that I was just dreaming about before that, that I can independently start good AI and start focusing on uh, general AI uh, on a full time, which I'm still not 100% uh, full time on good AI. I'm still uh, managing the gaming side, uh, gaming company a little bit, but also this will change actually quite soon because we hired CEO for for King Software House. So in a couple of months, uh, I think I will, I will be just a mentor or some kind of chairman for the gaming company. And then I will really spend 100% of my time on uh, general AI. Fantastic. So AI kind of was probably your first love, uh, but you chose to take the practical route of making money and developing games, which was another passion of yours. Uh, but if you were to share with us what's your ultimate motivation or ultimate main goal, just like you asked me, what do you want before I, in our conversation before we started uh, the recording? You asked me, what is your goal? What are you trying to do with Singularity Weblog? So let me send this back at you. What's your ultimate motivation or main goal? Uh, basically, we have this in the mission statement of Good AI, and it's... Uh, help humanity and understand the universe and in order to do these two things we need to build general ai because with general ai it will be much more easier much more productive or effective much more cheaper to actually do these two other things so i'm not saying like i'm some like total altruist that uh and i'm like thinking about helping humanity all the time but if i think about this that uh i have some kind of mission on this in this world or like you know some purpose i would say that that's one of the part but there is also the other very important and it is understanding the universe and again it's just uh, two words but you can see much more behind these two words because understand the universe also means uh, be able to live like preferably forever or uh, to to see what is actually how did this universe came to life you know and what is this universe how does it work? How does it run? And uh, if there is some end or if there is not end, basically just understand all these things 
much more and uh, maybe other way how to put this also is that uh, to maximize our future options so that we are not closing them by for example dying or uh, we are not closing them by not having AI but actually I want to be opening up our future options maximizing them and so this is another way how to put this mm -hmm. uh, if you were to paint that not logically as you just did but as a picture imagine like a surrealistic or impressionistic picture which expresses the vision that you have for the future or the dream that you have of the future how is that going to look like i think it will be machines or people connected with machines but at that point it will not be a difference and uh basically optimizing the science research engineering like uh, harvesting of the resources and uh, exploration and exploitation of this universe in order to either like maximize these future options or uh, kind of like work on this curiosity or like discover novel and novel things and then exploit them and so on. And, uh, I, I, and I think about this like some machines that are like exploring, exploiting and still wor working on some kind of recursive self-improvement. And uh, my picture is like this. So, uh, and these machines, they can be on different scales and also different sizes, different types and, and uh, anything like this. And, and working on such a vast, vast uh, scale that's even hard to imagine for me, like, you know, the usual singularity examples where you have entire planet as a huge computer, not like a- Computronium. A, Extracting all the solar energy of the star. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Not basically having the, the matter in a stupid form as it is like uh, today, but having it in something that's actually doing some computation, some intelligent computation and solving some tasks or discovering things and so on. So basically turning the universe into this kind of machine. We'll come back to that in a second, but let me uh, uh, share with you this. So all of our motivation comes not only from pleasure and hopes and dreams, but also from pain and fears. So let me flip the other side of the coin. You just shared your biggest dream with us. Is there something that you would call your biggest fear, whether it's personally for you or collectively for us as a civilization? Uh, that, this is a good point because actually I'm using, uh, even for myself, both motivations like positive and negative. And uh, I'm not only motivated by the positive things like things that we can achieve and so on, but also things that we can uh, lose, you know, if we don't do something or things like uh, bad things that can happen to us. And so, for example, one of these scary things for me is that I will die before uh, we get to AGI or singularity or something like this, because I think it will be uh, shame, basically, because, you know, like, uh, it's such a low probability that we happen to be in this world in this century, you know, where we actually have a good chance of getting to AGI and singularity. And if you die just a couple of years before that, it's like, it's shame, in my opinion. So I don't want uh, this to happen. And it's one of the driving forces that's like pushing me uh, faster and faster forward that uh, it can be just a little thing, you know, and uh, you die and then everything is like closed for you. So for example, this is one of the things. 
And uh, but again, it's not like I'm paralyzed by this, you know, uh, by being scared or something like this. It's more like that it's really pushing me forward. And uh, actually, it all helped me also in business, in game uh, development, where uh, we were not in super comfortable situation. Because when you are super comfortable, you have everything you need. Uh, it's like you are kind of not lazy, but, uh, you know, like you are okay. And on the other side, if you know that you have money in the bank only for, let's say, uh, six months, 12 months, and you need to pay people and all these things, and you have only one chance of success, then you need to invest all your energy just to the thing. And I think this, this is very good. So uh, maybe this will sound strange to some people, but I'm actually trying to put myself under some kind of stress even now when some people can say like, okay, like you have company, it's running well, you know, and all these things. but uh, if everything will be too easy for me, then I could lose a little bit of this, of this, uh, of this drive, mm -hmm. prioritization and all these things. So, so yes, I, I, or maybe totally different angle. How to put this is that if I imagine some possible scenarios or possible futures, and I see one where we can have this great, uh, all these great things, and there is another where we lost it. You know, we didn't manage manage it in the right way, then I want to avoid this, uh, this uh, bad scenario as much as possible. And basically, I am also visualizing this scenario in my head as something to avoid, like totally avoid. So I'm using negative uh, reinforcement on my quite a lot. Yeah. Uh, you know, by the way, uh, your fear that you may die before the singularity and so on. Uh, I don't know if you're familiar with it, but Kevin Kelly coined the, I think it's called Mays-Garrow Law, uh, which is basically the statement that uh, most favorable predictions about future technology will fall within the Mays-Garrow point, which is defined as the latest possible data prediction can come through and still remain within the lifetime of the person who's making the prediction. <laughs> so Kevin Kelly noticed that most people who make predictions about the future you know, always push off that prediction as late as possible, but not beyond of their expected death. Usually right about a little bit before that, so that luckily for themselves, they would actually witness it. And, you know, that's, of course, a warning in a way to, uh, to, to kind of push forward our own biases that we would be lucky enough to witness those changes. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think it's a uh, very nice uh, saying. Yeah, makes sense. Okay, so let's uh, talk about uh, good AI. Now, uh, first of all, let's get about uh, get on with some of the specifics. How many people do you have in your team currently, uh, and where are you located? So there is about twenty people in the company. Uh, most of them are researchers or engineers and programmers, and. Uh, uh, we are based in Prague, in Czech Republic, and uh, Good AI started about three years ago, but we started to uh, talk about the company publicly only about two years ago. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I see. And now, uh, you said that you did about a $10 million personal investment to launch the company. So, where is that money spent? Uh, what's kind of the, the, the budgeting for? Is it for... Uh, uh, salaries of the people you have hired? Do you have an R&D lab? And so on. Yes, yes, it's mostly for salaries or like people costs. 
and uh, maybe the office cost also some money, but it's far less than the people. And uh, some money goes to conferences, you know, and this kind of stuff. Yeah, I, mostly to people at this moment. And uh, I'm expecting that in the future we'll actually need to pay much more for the hardware. Yeah, that's that's the reason why I'm asking because um, I recently interviewed uh, another company which has a very similar name to yours, by the way, called Kindred AI, which is a Canadian company, and uh, and they have a considerable budget for hardware, given the fact that they're trying to build uh, human level embodied intelligence, which is to say robots with human capabilities. So I'm thinking that as you get better in what you do, uh, you would have to move out of software into hardware more and more, and therefore the budgeting prioritization may actually start shifting. Yes, 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 that's possible. I'm like keeping all these things open and uh, also the funding and the way how I'm like still adding the money basically to, to this budget is that... Uh, I wanted to have a really long uh, runway for the period where we don't have any kind of income or where it's actually super hard to predict, you know, if the breakthrough will come in a, in a year or five years or 10 years or something like this. So on the other side, like having a too long runway, again, can be double-edged sword. Yeah, you yeah. Know, like, okay, I have so much time, I don't need to really push myself. So right. for this reason, we are creating all these and mostly me all these other um like methods how to how to push ourselves uh and focus also on the short-term goals mm -hmm. and not be like just some uh guys dreaming about agi or something like this but really have some very short-term and very specific goals yeah i will come back to your milestones in a second i still want to lay out a little better the the general macro level picture and sort of the strategic positioning and the thinking behind it yeah, if I may. So, uh, because, you know, if you're a venture capitalist, one of the first questions that they would ask is like, okay, what's the exit strategy? In other words, you're putting $10 million, that's a lot of money. Uh, you're taking a big personal risk. They would say, what's the exit strategy? How do you make that money back? Uh, like in, in the long term, the exit strategy is singularity and, uh, <laughs> you know, and, uh, immortality and all these things, which is, I think, much more uh, valuable than just $10 million. Actually, I think it's more valuable than like billions of dollars. And uh, so that's the exit strategy, if you can call this exit. And uh, But I think we'll be able to make money even in short term, like uh, in, in years. Uh, we started a sister company called Good AI Business. And uh, in there, we are applying some of our prototypes. And the thing is that as even today, the AI is still limited, you know, like it's not a human level AI. So it has some capabilities, but also uh, many limitations when you compare it to, to the way humans are solving tasks or humans are learning. And so there are some applications or some use cases where you can use AI today without like you can use it, you know, because there are some low hanging fruits and so on. But there are still many things that are just like out of the reach of today AI. Or maybe yes, but you need a lot of human engineering to actually have useful AI in that uh, use case. So and as we were moving and upgrading our AI prototypes and getting it, you know, with better capabilities and less and less uh, these uh, limitations, 
uh, we will be applying it at our customers and this can be revenue. And uh, I think in the beginning, uh, the revenue will not be any crazy because uh, there will be like certain amount amount of value that the AI can add to customers' business. But as we will go later and later, they will be increasing its capabilities. And then uh, the value that it adds to the customer can be like basically exponential. So, and then I think it can make like a, a lot of money, basically. I think more money than we will actually need. Mm -hmm. By the way, another person who uh, does work very similar to what you do and uses the same kind of funding model, that is to say he makes money uh, with narrow AI applications, which he then reinvests in developing uh, general AI applications. Uh, and his name is Peter Voss, uh, if you're interested. I've interviewed him a couple of times on my show. I very, Peter. I yeah, Peter. Yeah, Peter is a very fascinating individual too. So now let's talk about the actual meat of the matter, the nitty gritty, all the details of how we're going to make this happen. So first of all, though, we have to define the terms, right? Terms which are easily thrown around all the time. And my impression after doing over 200 of these interviews is that everyone has a bit of a different flavor to the term. So quite often people who argue actually talk besides each other because they have different meaning of the term. So I want to be very specific and define them. So let's start first with intelligence. Because if we're talking about artificial intelligence first, we have to figure out what intelligence is on its own. So what's intelligence for Marek? Uh, one of the definitions that we use is that uh, intelligence is a tool for searching for solutions to problems. And uh, so it's like a search, you know, in some space of possible hypothetical solutions to some problems. And uh, what is intelligent about this is how you organize this search, you know, how you make it uh, more efficient than just brute force through all the solutions, but how you organize it in a way that is uh, getting let's say exponentially and exponentially better at uh, efficiency of learning to solve or solving those problems. And uh, I can go in much more detail, but uh, this is the main uh, main definition that we use. And uh, uh, yeah. So, okay. So then let's see. Where does the artificial part in artificial intelligence come in at and how? In other words, what does that stand for? What does it mean? How do we define it? Artificial means for me only that it's something created by people. And, uh, but other than that, it's also still just a natural process of this universe. You know, so it's like this universe or the evolution uh, created us through some very, very long process. Uh, luckily, it was gradual, you know, so uh, it's one new invention building on top of the previous inventions and so on. So it's getting uh, more efficient, like with every, let's say, iteration. And now we are building artificial intelligences. And when we will really build artificial intelligence, uh, like real AI, you know, uh, it's comparable to the way humans are learning and solving, uh, then uh, this will take over in the following intelligent search. Uh, or maybe another way or like analogy that I'm using is that uh, the universe is doing some kind of search where it's searching for better for structures that are better at searching for better structures and so on. You know, so it started all with uh, 
Big Bang and just some, let's say, particles. Again, this is simplification. Then it evolved to a structures like galaxies and planets and this planet, you know, with life, some very simple life, more complex life, intelligent life, uh, people, society, and in a few years or decades, uh, AGI. And this search will just continue, you know, and uh, always searching for structures that are better at searching, more efficient and so on. Let me push back a little bit here on that thesis, though. Uh, because that's a very teleological thesis and uh, comes very much straight out of Ray Kurzweil's book, The Singularity is Near, where he talks about the trend from uh, lower level intelligence uh, or to higher level intelligence and until the ultimate moment where, as you put it previously, we don't have any more dumb matter, but it's all smart matter. And as he calls it, the universe wakes up. And that's supposedly the direction of evolution. But I would say that's only one direction, perhaps, of the evolution. Because evolution doesn't have a direction. It has directions, many of them. Some of those directions take us through higher intelligences and more intelligence. Some take us exactly the other way around. So, for example, uh, in biology, we have organisms who have de-evolved intelligence. Uh, because intelligence comes at a very high price. You need to have certain amount of uh, neuroprocessing matter, like our brains, which is very expensive. It takes maybe 40% of our calories. It requires very specific conditions. Um, and it creates very narrow range of survivability of the organism. And yet other organisms which have de-evolved that have higher adaptability and higher survivability, therefore, because their range is expanded. They require less nutrition. They're more capable and able to adapt to the environment. So I'd say evolution moves both ways, always. And it's like a cone of possibilities, not a single one. And if you take it to the cosmic level, we have, as you said, the formation of the planets and the stars, but we have the opposite formation too, or deformation of the explosion of supernovas, right? So we have the two directions constantly going against each other, extropy and entropy. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I, I agree. And uh, I would maybe add that uh, this search is like a uh, search without objectives. So, or without one specific objective or like a target. That exactly. I'm not saying that the evolution is going to one very specific point. I think it's just like moving, uh, moving uh, according to some fitness, you know? So uh, if it's better to be stronger, to survive in some environment, then it will evolve in stronger. If it is better to be smarter, then it will evolve in smarter and so on. Of course, it's very local, you know, like there are some local maximum. Yeah, but is it better to be smarter? Let me, let me give you another example. So we are the smartest species on our planet, right? Imagine the, and you said intelligence is the best tool for optimization and, and certain uh, problems. And the biggest problem of our species is, of course, survivability, right? And you said that one of the goals is to avoid death, uh, achieve immortality, uh, populate the universe or spread throughout the universe, which, of course, are all things that are going to improve our survivability. But is intelligence really uh, helpful? Let me give you an example. Take a cockroach, a rat, and a university-level professor like Albert Einstein and send them to a desert island somewhere in the middle of nowhere. 
go later, six months or 12 months or 18 months later, who do you think has the best chance of survival and adaptation? Einstein, the most intelligent guy, or the rat or the cockroach? That's a good question, and uh, it depends on the on the environment, you know, local environment and uh, and the timing. Because uh, in this setting that you said, maybe the the rat or the cockroach will survive, but uh, if you give it more time or uh, you change the environment a little bit, then the Einstein will have more chances. Because maybe Einstein will find a crashed airplane with supplies and everything, and will you know be very happy, and he will knew how to use that supplies. And uh, where the rat will not be able to open the lock to the airplane or something like this, you know. So, or maybe another way, if we go on a larger time scale, uh, rats and cockroaches and all these uh, simpler life forms could be living on these planets for millions of years, maybe even another billion or so. But then some asteroid will just crash to the planet and kill them all. Whereas we, with our intelligent, uh, will be already way off from this planet, like will not be here anymore, or maybe, you know, like will be much more uh, like distributed through the, through the universe. So just one planet will not matter that much, or will be actually able to stop the dust, asteroid and all these things. So I think uh, uh, I don't have uh, like a answer that will tell you that intelligence is winner all the time, because it is not. It is not. That's but, precisely my point. Yeah. Yeah, but I think it's just about increasing the chance that uh, you can adapt and solve some new and unseen problems. And uh, that is a better tool uh, with higher chance. But again, there can be a situation where it can actually work against you, like that uh, experiment with the flies, you know, where there were some flies that had higher intelligence, but also higher consumption of energy. And then the flies with, you know, some stupid flies. And basically, when you played with the environment, like there was less food, the smart uh, flies had much more problems than the stupid flies. So again, it may very much depends on the environment. But if I had to bet on something, I would rather bet on intelligence, you know, with this survivability and uh, long term survivability and basically being able to adapt uh, to new problems, you know, problems that you never uh, like experienced before that with intelligence you have higher chances of solving them. It doesn't need to work perfectly, like there is no guarantee, you know, that's another thing. It's still just approximations. But I would rather be intelligent uh, and use intelligence to solve problems than not be intelligent. I agree. I would rather be more intelligent rather than less myself too. But my point was here that uh, we shouldn't underestimate. And I, I have moved from a sort of a teleological linear thinking and now have embraced a little bit more of a mixed back mosaic thinking. So let me give you an, another example. Our planet, we often say, is dominated by humans. But what we forget is that it's actually not dominated by humans. It's dominated by bacteria. Uh, and bacteria doesn't have any intelligence, and yet it's evolving much faster than we can even beat it up with our antibiotics, etc., etc. And it doesn't have intelligence to do that. It simply does it by a process of evolution, <laughs> which lacks intelligence at the individual level, but apparently is smart enough at the species level to adapt and even defeat our best tools that our intelligence can come up with. And let's say if we have a nuclear war today, chances are bacteria, cockroaches, and rats 
would have much better chances of survival than humanity does. Or if we have a huge asteroid impact tomorrow, like a killer asteroid or a, or a killer um, um, volcanic eruption or something like that, those are the ones that are more likely to survive. At least I would bet more on that on those, even though I personally prefer always to have more intelligence. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, so I'm just trying to, to, to be the devil's advocate here and undermine some of those assumptions, if I may. But, but still, the thing is that uh, even with better intelligence, uh, you can be solving some problems and only see up to certain, you know, like future or a certain horizon. And your actions that are good for the next year can be actually devastating for the following years and so on. So... Uh, just like we are doing right now with our intelligence with global warming. So uh, it's not a hundred percent guaranteed thing, but you know. And uh, <laughs> as you said, uh, with this like uh, intelligence on the species level, not on the individual, but on the species level, that's also part of it. You know that uh, even the humanity has some kind of abstract intelligence, let's say bigger than just one individual. Same, same thing we can say about evolution. If you look on the entire process, it's not very intelligent, but there is some learning, you know, there is some adaptation. So some kind of intelligence and uh, uh, it works, but it can also work on much smaller time scale and faster and use better methods how to evaluate the futures, you know, and uh, prepare for these futures and so on. And that's what we are doing with that the human kind of intelligence yeah okay and i totally agree by the way with socrates who says better socrates unsatisfied than a pig satisfied so so yes i would also choose more rather than less intelligence myself anyway uh let's talk about how you're going to accomplish those goals that you shared with us so um we discussed what is intelligence and what is artificial intelligence now the question is, how do we build that, especially when it's not narrow AI, but it's general AI, as you explicitly uh, say uh, in your statement. And then there's one more even harder step than that, which is taking the general AI and making it actually good, which is not necessarily self-obvious, I think. And it's the maybe even harder than creating uh, the general AI, or or that's uh, often referred to as the control problem or the alignment pro value alignment issue. So let's take that and break it into steps. First of all, how do you plan to build AGI? Uh, okay, so the way we are uh, planning to do it or that we are doing it, uh, there are different angles that I can start with. Uh, one of them is that we studied uh, how different ways how to do uh, general AI, how to approach general AI, uh, which ended up with having few roadmaps of, uh, and the roadmap is like, we are here, we need to get to human level AGI. So let's define what is human level AGI. Let's say it's uh, AI that has repertoire of problem solving skills similar to, to a human, like a normal human. And then how to get there and solve one milestone after another. And we have multiple, uh, multiple roadmaps in our team. But the common shared uh, paradigm is gradual learning. And that's basically, uh, some people may call it continuous learning, incremental learning, maybe transfer learning. But basically the principle is that uh, you build new skills on top of previous skills or you reuse previously acquired skills 
to acquire a new skill. So basically, you're gradually getting better and better at learning, at problem solving, and so on. And uh, so this is one part of the of the answer. It's gradual learning, and we are working on this. Even the AI challenges about this. And the other part is guided learning, and this gets us closer to uh, to your second question about how to make the AI actually good. So uh, if we will have AI that can gradually build one skill or acquire one skill after another and use these acquired skills to acquire new skills more efficiently, uh, then we create a curriculum, you know, some learning tasks, like many of them, uh, and we will start training the AI on this on this curriculum. And this curriculum must be kind of like a good curriculum. So uh, there must be tasks that will actually positively bias the AI to have beneficial and safe behavior towards us. So what and kind of task can do that? We will start with very simple tasks, just like now, you know, we are basically playing with symbols and so on. So it's nothing that I would say this is human level AI. It's just, you know, the beginning. But at, uh, later and later as the AI will be, um, or when, uh, when the architecture, this AGI architecture that we are building will be much more strong or powerful, uh, then th there will be learning tasks that will be similar to what children are being uh, taught or you know educated. So basically, I would say it will go through some kind of uh, kindergarten school, uh, similar to people, and uh, probably it will not be one-to-one -one mapping, but something very similar, maybe in similar order. Uh, depends on what kind of biases we will have in the architecture and then in the curriculum. But again, the point is that first start training some simple task, and then the other tasks are reusing the skills or the knowledge uh, gained in the previous task, and it's like snowballing, basically. And as you are acquiring more and more skills, uh, you are able to learn new skills much more efficiently, and uh, you the AI could start learning the skills uh, or would start learning the skills in a similar manner as people, you know, just by reading books, interacting with other people or other AIs and so on. And here we will need to bias the AI to be good, uh, which means that there will need to be some tasks that will positively bias the AI to be to be good for us. So one of the ideas uh, is that, uh, for example, we can show with books or stories where there is some positive human character, probably not Bible. <laughs> I hope not. <laughs> there is not much positive for me in the Bible, but hey, that's just me. And uh, but you know we can find some some good books on this uh, showing like good good characters, and then we'll bias the AI to take these positive human characters as a role model. And I would venture to suggest ancient Greek and Roman philosophy. That's my favorite: Socrates, Seneca, Cicero, Marcus Aurelius. Yeah. So, so this is the plan. And uh, the last part of the, of the answer is that we named the company Good AI. So we, by the definition, cannot create not good AI. You know, so like you can be assured that our AI will be good. So, wouldn't that be some kind of crazy irony if <laughs> if, if the good AI company came up with the bad AI? And how do you prevent that from happening? What's the like? Do you have a guarantee? Money back or, or otherwise, life back guarantee. I, I think that there cannot be 100% guarantee. It's just about uh, lowering the probability that we or someone else will create bad AI 
to a minimum or to a probability that is way lower than the probability that without doing the AI will be in a worse situation. So again, it's like waiting these two things that if we do AI or oh, sorry, if we don't do AI, there is some chance that something bad will happen to the humanity and so on. And then again, there is another scenario. We create AI and there is some chance that the AI will go crazy and uh, and destroy humanity. And we need to lower this probability to a number that which is much, much, much lower than the probability that without doing AI, uh, we can do. Um... What is an acceptable number for Marek? Let's say you're developing an AGI and you have it 70% chances of being good and 30% chances of being bad. Are you going to launch it publicly? No, no, no. I think the probability must be like, uh, just like, for example, when you sit to a car and, uh, you know, drive home or something like that, you are not thinking that, okay, the probability of me killing myself is this or this. It's like, it never happened to you, you know, that you crashed on your way home, probably or hopefully. And so you are not even considering it. So if I have to put this in an emotional, you know, uh, description, I would uh, use an image, something like this, because the numbers can be complicated. And uh, even calculating these numbers, if everything is just some approximation or estimation, it's it's very hard. So uh, I don't have uh, maybe satisfactory answer to this, but I would say that. Uh, the measurement of the probability much must be so low that will just the possibility that it will go wrong will be almost impossible. Like for all practical purposes, it will be almost almost zero. It will not be zero, but it will be almost zero. So ninety nine point nine 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 something. And then very very I think very very many nines at the end. Because I mean, there's a number of issues there in terms of the commercial uh, sort of impetus that. You know, companies want to launch earlier and earlier products so that they can start generate uh, cash flow. Hopefully, you don't have that kind of pressure because you you have already a successful uh, source of revenue. But the other thing is something that you mentioned previously in terms of the reinforced learning one-on-one -on -one from a human. Because we know some humans will kill all of us today if they could. Uh, or some humans just go crazy or some humans just do stupid stuff all the time. And most humans do stupid stuff all the time, even the smartest of us in, in some of their areas. Like Einstein was notorious, the, the prototype of the distracted professor. Uh, so uh, how do we prevent that issue? If, if the AI is learning from the wrong person, or even if it's the right person, but it's at the wrong time. Because let's say you have a good person who has problems at home with his family relationship or at work or with his bank account or with his children or something and gets totally upset or emotionally unstable. And then the AI, the AI starts emulating that kind of behavior. Mm -hmm. uh, so since we plan to teach the AI through the curriculum, uh, the curriculum must be uh, good. And uh, so I don't think, uh, or in the first stages, I don't think the AI will be learning from the people or just by listening to uh, to normal people what they want to teach it. I think uh, in the beginning, the AI will learn just from this curriculum and this curriculum will be designed in a way that is beneficial and safe. And 
must be so. So when later someone will try to uh, like retrain the AI to do some bad stuff, the AI will already be biased to kind of like ignore this command. So for example, uh, if I ask you, uh, if you want to kill 10 people, you know, just for fun, uh, I'm assuming that based on your like biases that you have right now in, in you, like positive biases, basically, you will say, no, thank you. I don't want to kill 10 people. So, uh, and that's it. Like nobody can force you. I mean, probably someone could do it, you know, some hack or something like this, but, uh, you would be really trying to, uh, do everything in your power to non to not let someone else bias you in a way that uh, killing ten people is something you actually want to do. So you will be preventing all these things, all these like uh, attempts, you know, to to maybe change your perception of what is a human. Or yeah, maybe... and that's where the idea of the school for AI comes in because I've been very fortunate to have good mentors in my life and to have had good schooling and stress on ethics and about what's right and wrong and and therefore i emulate good examples and i'm inspired by good examples so hopefully and as you said the idea behind school of ai is precisely that and that's where the curriculum is so important but talk to me about the other pillar there or the other tool that you were developing at the same time which is the actual universal brain architecture that you're going to hopefully uh, be basing that agi on and then taking to school <laughs> So again, the, the main thing here is the gradual learning. And if I have to say something more, uh, it's about, uh, I could compare it to neural networks that can grow uh, as they are gaining, uh, grow and reconfigure as they are gaining new and new knowledge or skills. But uh, to think about this as just neural networks will be again, too limiting. Uh, but it's some network. That's probably the better description. And this kind of network uh, is receiving error from the teacher. In the beginning, it's just very simple error channel uh, because the AI doesn't have a doesn't have skills to understand more complex error signal. Like, for example, if I just tell you reward or punishment, that's something that uh, even really a basic agent can understand if he's biased to to understand something like this. On the other side, if I tell to this uh, a, a stupid or simple agent that uh, don't do this because this will happen to you and please do it this way, if the agent doesn't have skills to understand what I just said, you know, it doesn't make sense to tell him this thing. So first, uh, this kind of architecture needs to learn uh, skills for better error signal or error feedback. And uh, so again, uh, and this network grows and reconfigures and is also in some kind of meta learning way, uh, learning how to learn in a better way or more efficient way or way that is actually making it better at adapting uh, to solve new problems or better at uh, it's adapting to be better at adapting and so on, you know, like these meta levels. And uh, so maybe one of the descriptions of one of the architectures, because we have few of them in our team, but one of them, I would say like gradual and guided meta learning and uh, start with very simple learning algorithms, something similar to evolution, but through this guiding, get it uh, to learn learning algorithms very fast and then use those to gain new architecture properties, new learning algorithms and new practical skills. And uh, 
this thing would be or is represented in some kind of growing network of, of nodes and uh, that's it and yeah we are working on this mm-hmm. yeah uh, i suggest people also check out your your website because you you are using a diversity of approaches which uh, which speaks to to how sort of unbiased and agnostic you are, and and you're just kind of aiming to get anything that works. And uh, perhaps at some point you might even combine a number of those approaches, just like the team behind Watson had to do to make Watson win Jeopardy, for example. But let me talk to you a little bit about the theory of intelligence here, because I've interviewed both uh, Dr. Chomsky and Dr. Minsky. And they both denied to me that we have made any progress whatsoever with respect to artificial general intelligence whatsoever. And one of the main things that they uh, put to support that claim is the lack of a theory of intelligence. Uh, Noam Chomsky said we're eons away from that, for example. And, you know, maybe you wouldn't be surprised from Noam Chomsky, but Marvin Minsky, I was lucky to interview him probably one of the last interviews before he unfortunately passed away. And he said, we, we have not gotten any closer to that. So how important is a theory of intelligence in your view? And how far or close are you to developing one yourself? I think it's very important because if you want to build something, some system, you know, a game or AI, you need to understand the, the theory because it allows you to understand the general principles instead of the specifics and uh, therefore you can kind of like compress the the search for the solution because you don't need to be solving all the specifics you just need to solve the general principle that's behind all these very specific things so i think theory is very important and i'm not claim claiming that we have a theory of intelligence or something like this but uh, i think uh, that uh like we understand something and uh, now we are testing the hypothesis and we are testing them by implementing one minimum viable prototype after another and uh, getting a better and better picture about what is intelligence. And and again, I think it goes hand in hand, like hand in hand. Do you have a theoretical part of the team that, that looks at that per se or? Everyone is actually doing this because I think it's very connected. It's like you need to understand the theory and you need to be building that thing because it's like uh, someone, and you will probably know the name, said that if I cannot build it, I don't understand it. Yeah. And uh, so I think it's it's very much connected. And uh, this actually is something similar to like that I learned uh, when I was developing uh, computer graphics and games and all these things that... Uh, you need to understand the theory and then you need to build it and you you iterate on this, you know, in this kind of cycle. And when you build it, your theory gets better. And with better theory, you can build a better thing. And it just goes in this circle. And uh, mm-hmm. I see. So let's talk a little bit about uh, the, 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 the impetus behind the guest, uh, the guest blog article that you wrote for singularityweblog.com, which is the general AI challenge. So share with us the specifics, the motivation, the milestones, the rewards, the challenges that you basically sent out there to the community, globally speaking. And of course, you you back it up by a $5 million fund. So how is that whole process going to unfold or how have you planned it to unfold? So the, the 
main idea behind this is that we can either solve the general AI in our team or someone from the wider community can solve it. And uh, I don't think you need to be a scientist or a professor or you know person like this to actually build it because I have seen it many times in a gaming and computer graphics industry that the people who are actually pushing it are not only the professors, but actually guys who understand the theory or can really compress that theory into something that is uh, that works, you know, some approximations, some can say like some simple hacks or something like this, but they just like take what is relevant, what is most important and build something, some really smart uh, computer rendering algorithm or something like this and uh, and make it working. So we, I think that uh, there can be even like a normal people, you would say, not professional scientists who can build something. And we want to uh, get these people involved in general AI development much more through this challenge. And so the challenge is planned for many years. Uh, I mean, to be honest, I don't know how many years, basically uh, until we will have general AI. And uh, I hope that we will uh, we will, at the end of the challenge, we will actually have the general AI. So what are the first steps, though? What, what are the first milestones, benchmarks, the first releases of funding that you you plan to, to basically give away to the people who win those first steps? So the first round that we started a couple of weeks ago uh, has $50,000 in, in the prizes and focusing on gradual learning. And we released a set of uh, training tasks, which uh, have this graduality in them, which means that one task is building on the previous task. So what agent learns in task one can be somehow reused or exploited in task number two. So if the agent learned to solve task number one, it will be much easier for him to solve task number two instead of if the agent would start just with task number two and skip task number one. And it goes gradually like this up to the task number 40. And uh, uh, so, for example, so it's cumulative learning, basically. It's cumulative, and uh, uh, because when uh, you are in task forty, which is very complex, uh, you can, as an agent, you can generate so many hypotheses that are the that could be the solution to the to the task that the space of this hypothesis is so huge that without having the biases that you acquire in the previous tasks. It's just impractically huge. You know, you will not be able to search that that space, and also you will not be able to state hypotheses that will actually uh, help you solve task number forty. So basically, another way how to think about this, and I think it's practical way how to think about intelligence, is that you are building biases, positive biases, not just like the cognitive biases, like this negative thing, but positive biases that helps you. Uh, to narrow the search space or to make it more wider or actually to generate the right hypothesis to search through this space, to, to search through more plausible areas in this hypothesis space and so on. And you, learn, you will learn this or the agent will learn this in, the, the, uh, in, the, in these tasks. And as it is progressing in more and more like or additional, additional tasks, uh, it's already pre-biased to solve the following task much more efficiently than if it just goes straight to that very complex, let's say, task number 40. So uh, this first round, uh, the launch uh, two weeks ago uh, has 50,000 in prizes, is focusing on gradual learning. And there are actually two set of prizes. One is quantitative, the other is qualitative. Quantitative is about an agent 
that can then finish all the tasks in the shortest number of time steps and will also pass the graduality and not forgetting uh, validation test. And I, I will get to this uh, later. And then there is qualitative price and this qualitative price is that people don't need to send the agents. Uh, they can just, you know, like show us some idea or some concept and there will be a judge, uh, sorry, there will be a jury and this jury will say like, okay, this concept or this idea, uh, this design is, is best thing for us. And back to this quantitative price. Uh, so we will be also measuring like the agent that will solve all the evaluation tasks in the shortest number of time steps can win, but we'll also test if the agent is actually using gradual learning. So we will compare agent, the same agent uh, that will start on task number one, two, three, four, five, and so on, with the same agent that didn't have these tasks and just started, with, let's say, task number 10. And then the, the agent that had the previous experience on this like uh, preliminary tasks should solve it in a shorter, shorter number of time steps that than the agent that didn't have this previous experience. And this is kind of like a, not a proof, this is very important, but it's an indication that there was some gradual learning uh, in the process, because sometimes it can actually, the gradual learning can work against you. But this is uh, probably uh, too many details. And then also not forgetting, so for example, as the agent is learning uh, new skills, new skills, new skills, we also don't want him to forget the skills that the agent learned on the previous skills. But again, this also does need to apply sometimes because sometimes you actually, if you want to learn some like advanced task, you need to forget some of your previous beliefs. So sometimes you need to change it. And the question is if we design the tasks in a way that uh, actually forgetting is useful or not useful. And maybe last important information is that this round uh, will uh, be running for six months and then there will be one month uh, evaluation where we will be evaluating the agents and uh, we released uh, training tasks that people can use to train their agents and also see if there is actually some gradual learning but the actual evaluation will be uh, happening or we will do it on uh, non-public evaluation tasks which will be kind of similar to the training task, but still different. And the people that are the participants, they will send to us pre-trained agents. So they will not just send the code, but they will also set agents that were already trained on the training tasks or maybe even different curricula that, you know, the participant created for his agent. And uh, we will uh, evaluate these uh, pre-trained agents on the evaluation non-public tasks, and then we will announce the winners. Fascinating, fantastic details. I, I think this was very useful, for, especially for people who are considering uh, taking a part uh, in this uh, challenge. Now, let's talk a little bit about, you, you mentioned that AGI may take many years and you talked about measurements on the first uh, round, but how do you know that you've succeeded ultimately at creating AGI? This is a good question. I think we will need to have like part of the curriculum uh, we actually call it School for AI. So part of, of this School for AI will need to be also some evaluations. And uh, uh, if evaluation, so we can actually measure if the agent learned some learning task up to uh, acceptable performance. 
and uh, so that we can let him go to the following uh, task and so on. And somewhere there, there will need to be uh, evaluations for uh, for all these skills that it will learn. And I think it will be something much more complex than just Turing test or or something like this, because we will need Marvin to... Marvin Minsky said that the Turing test is a joke on my interview with him. <laughs> I think basically it's a joke. So uh, I think it can be just one of the like subtests or something like this, but it will not be enough. And uh, actually, I think we will need much more targeted tests for uh, all these skills that uh, human level intelligence needs. And uh, only there we will be able to say with cer some certainty that, okay, this is human level intelligence or this is not human level intelligence. Okay. And, and then you need another test, don't you? Because first is to establish the fact or deny the fact, to falsify the, the hypothesis that you have reached AGI. But then we need the good test to know whether it's actually good or bad AGI. So how do we test for that? Because we can have AGI that's not necessarily good and that can do awful damage, right? So how do we test for that? And that's the tricky part for me. Yeah, this is tricky part. Uh, again, I think right now I don't have answer that will be enough at the end, you know, of of our uh, journey. But my current idea about this is that we will have again some, uh, let's say, ethical or moral uh, tests, and uh, the AI uh, should not know it's being tested, and we'll test it in different situations, and we'll see how it behaves. And uh, this would be like a very simple answer, but it also have many uh, problems or many special cases where it will not work. So, uh, for example, one of the things that we actually, uh, and I didn't talk about this yet, is that I wouldn't actually, or I don't really want to create AI like completely autonomous agent and then let it go freely to the world. I would actually rather create AI that is just a tool for people uh, something that can help you solve some problems, even very complex problems, but can help you solve problems. And then it's up to you to actually make the final call. So maybe in the beginning, the AI can be just a, like an advisor. Uh, so for example, instead of having the AI design factories for new AIs and all these things, maybe just have a AI that will uh, propose a new blueprint for factory. And then you will double check, you know, if everything is correct or something like this. Mm -hmm. It's a version of what people have sometimes referred to as the Oracle AI. And then there's different sort of levels of control over the Oracle. So you have the extreme level of control where some people have proposed entire sandboxing of the AI, where you have only a single bit leaving the sandbox with a zero or one, meaning yes or no kind of questions and answers. And then others who give it a lot more freedom uh, with the example that you suggested, for example, of giving you a whole design for a factory or whatever it may be, uh, where you kind of have a, a lot higher confidence that it's not going to backfire or be detrimental to humanity in general overall. Yeah, but to, to, to some people and to me personally, that sounds similar to the control over our children, for example, right? When you have a child, you don't have a guarantee that that child is not going to become a Hitler one day you hope that it wouldn't become a Hitler and to improve that hope you 
teach it in the best way possible, just like you mentioned with your school of AI. We have, of course, schools for children, and you want to give it good mentorship and tell the child to read certain kinds of good books. And But ultimately, I don't think there's a there's perfect guarantee, just like as you pointed out. Ultimately, our children are free agents of their own, and we cannot control their fate, their destiny, or their decision-making process. We can only guide them, but it's up to them at some point, right? Which is why, for example, uh, AI has sometimes been called our mind children, <laughs> and so on. Uh, and that's, of course, the control problem. Uh, now, let me talk about another thing that you mentioned in one of your uh, previous speeches that I watched yesterday, where you said that everybody will benefit from AI and AGI. So unpack a little bit that, that claim for us, please. Uh, uh, the AI or super, super intelligence or general AI will give us, you know, means to exploit uh, the universe in a much more efficient way than we are doing right now. So there will be some kind of abundance of everything. And uh, uh, there still will be some uh, resource con constraints unless you know, we discover some new physical law or something like that. But I think there will be, but for the needs of humans, it will be more than enough. So everyone uh, will have the, his uh, physical needs satisfied. And uh, of course, if the AI will be created by good people or people who uh, want to share uh, this kind of wealth uh, with the others. And uh, so, yeah, this this is the answer. I agree with you entirely, but but I think that it's 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 one of the op uh, possibilities. And right now, it's kind of unclear which way we're we're heading. Perhaps because um, if you talk to somebody in northern Pennsylvania, where they close all the coal mines, and or in the sort of the rust belt in the United States, where all the kind of steel mills and, and other huge plants where people had very had made very good living uh, for decades, if not for a hundred or more years, you know, they would say that automation, and, and that's where my concern comes in, that automation in the short to medium term creates what some people have already re uh, referred to as technological unemployment, or at least a rise of unemployment. And then consequently, you have a political backlash to people who have lost their job and and, and are basically struggling to survive. And, you know, it's not hard to see that, that uh, most recently we had the Brexit in the United Kingdom and now we had the election of Donald Trump in the United States, mostly from people who have not benefited from the explosion of technological advances that we have experienced in our civilization in the last 10 or 20 years. In other words, we have had the greatest progress in terms of technology ever for the last 15 or 20 years. And yet so many people from the middle class have gone to a uh, poverty line. And, and therefore you have the political backlash and therefore you have an environment which can basically ruin the, all the progress that we have created so far. So what do you think about those trends and, and how do we mitigate them? Yeah, uh, I think that uh, if uh, this technological unemployment will create or will like um, 
there will be a chance that it will create uh, some kind of backlash or some kind of like riots. Just like Ned Ludd's people were breaking down the spinning genies at the beginning of the Industrial Revolution. Yeah. Or uh, it's this is about just uh, human mentality or their emotions and everything. So if uh, people who lost their jobs don't have money, if they will feel that uh, the rich people are taking something from them, then it's something that uh, has to be has to be solved. And uh, what I see in uh, even like politicians, uh, at least they are discussing this kind of risk and uh, discussing some possible uh, like solutions, like you know, universal basic income or taxation of robots and all these things. And uh, I don't know which one is the best answer for the short term or long term. Uh, 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 also, it's like uh, I don't really know because I I will not be the person who will decide on this, you know, like I'm not politician and so on. So, but I think they will, uh, will choose one of these. It's just like uh, if the country or the state has some problems, the politicians should find some solution. It's not always the best one, but again, uh, I think we'll solve this somehow. But the reason why I'm asking you is because you, someone might say, may be kind of causing the problem by inventing smarter and smarter uh, artificial intelligence, which can get applied everywhere, basically, around us, right? That's the whole goal, right? So, for example, uh, there's 4 million truck drivers in the United States. Uh, what happens to them? And, you know, truck driver in the United States, those people make between eighty or $120,000, right? So, chances are their jobs are gone. And there's another 5 million jobs like post, mail delivery, and all those. Those are all going to be gone in the next two, three, five years at the most or something, right? What do we do with all those people and how do we keep them, you know, not rebelling and revolting? And, and you know, because people would say when you're releasing or creating a technology, you do bear some responsibility for its application and its consequences. Yeah. Yeah. So since the, the governments have the responsibility to make sure that the people in their country have some good living conditions and, and so on. I think the governments will uh, take some steps to to solve this. Uh, one of them can be just like taxing the companies that are creating this kind of automation and basically causing the, the loss of the jobs. And uh, or it will be mandatory or it will be like forced uh, or it will be Maybe there will be some form of altruism, but I don't think there will be too much altruism on the side of the companies in the short term, because it's like if you create AI and uh, everyone will start using the AI cars and uh, 4 million people will lose their jobs, then I don't, I cannot see a company that will just give away the money back to the, to the drivers or something like this. It's just like the business doesn't or capitalism doesn't work this way. But again, the government can basically force the company to actually give some of that money back to the people. I'm not saying it's right or not, but it could be one of the solution. And Bill Gates is, for example, proposing something along the lines you're talking about by taxing the, the, the robots uh, or the AI or something that replaces the labor that's in the same rate of taxation that the labor was previously taxed at. Yeah. Like I don't, I'm not a fan of like socialism or you know like this kind of thing. <laughs> but I think it can be like 
pragmatical solution for short-term problems because uh, these people, they will need the money, they will need to live somehow. And uh, if the people who own the AI uh, want to live on this planet without you know, like worrying that uh, the, the masses will kill you next day or something like this, then they will need to give something back. And that's it. I think you can look on this like a pure pragmatical problem. Yeah, my concern is that, you know, not that the machines would rise one day. My concern is that poor people who have lost everything <laughs> would rise up way before that and destroy the system that can produce further progress in the short to medium term so we can't actually have the chance to get to the long term. That's my concern, personally. Uh, but, Marek, there's only about seven or eight minutes left of our conversation. So um, let me just ask you a few things uh, at, a, at a kind of faster pace, if I may. So first of all, if I were to put you on the spot and ask you to make an educated guess about the timeline to the, to the technological singularity, whereabouts do you fall? Uh... I don't know, because like all these predictions are based on our own biases and beliefs and you like the thing that you said. Uh, I'm thinking or my perspective on this is from different angle. It's like, let's make it as soon as possible, but of course safely. And so we put a, a deadline clock uh, in our office and it is nine, nine years and I don't know, like eight months. Uh, <laughs> Uh, and again, it's one of the like methods how to push ourselves a little bit more. But again, it's not a prediction. It's more like a, how to push ourselves. And uh, what's the biggest challenge that you think you're facing then? If you don't want to commit yourself to a timeline, what's the biggest ch challenge that we're facing to get there, in your view? Uh, it's that the human level skill set can be actually very many skills, and it can be quite even like um, a lot of work detail work to put it together so it's like i think what we need to solve is this gradual learning it's let's call it like algorithmic problem and let's say that it's not the biggest issue but even if you will have this gradual learning thing i think it will still be a lot of work to create the learning tasks for the ai so that we can teach it and bias it in a very safe way it's just like uh, maybe this is not a good analogy but if you're a man how easy is to make a baby you know and then how much work is to actually train it yeah and uh, and let let it be like a good uh, good human so maybe something like this and i think uh i think it's a great example because the hard work is afterwards <laughs> exactly and so uh I think that here we may be much more surprised uh, with the complexity of the human level skill set or the repertoire of human skills than what we think right now. And uh, so this, this I think, uh, can be surprising. And uh, is there? So the, yeah, uh, finish, finish up. Yeah. So maybe the timeline. I would say, if someone gets a little bit lucky and really find some really good shortcuts or something like this. Maybe he can do it in three years, uh, but uh, maybe it will take 30 years. So so three to 30 years. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. That's, that's a, that's a good range. Okay. I, I kind of feel the same way, by the way, I feel exactly, exactly the same. Yeah. 
So again, I think uh, I, I cannot predict this. It's more like let's make it as soon as possible because the scenarios with good uh, AGI are much better than the scenarios without. And uh, but I don't know really uh, exactly when. Okay, so we're kind of running in the last three or four minutes here. So let me ask you this. What's the best place to find more about Marek Rosa personally or the work of good AI generally? So I'm posting something on my blog post occasionally, but I think the better source of what we are doing would be a good AI website like www.goodai.com. And uh, there is some information about some theory of intelligence that we have, some framework, uh, roadmaps, and um, the AI Roadmap Institute, where we are studying the, the roadmaps, comparing them. Uh, there is also a link to the uh, general AI challenge and so on. Yeah, it's, it's a fantastic resource with lots of links and specific details that people can dive into, just like I did yesterday and the day before. Okay, so the final question that I always ask of all my guests on my show is, what's the most important thing? You know, we, we talked to you today for probably about 80, 85 minutes. What's the single most important message that you want us to take away from this conversation with Marek Rosa today? Mm -hmm. That's an interesting question. Maybe that uh, we are working on general AI and the singularity and the future of humanity and these things. And uh, please wish us good luck. Fantastic. Yeah, I, I do wish you good luck. Um, and actually, I would suggest and perhaps add to that that we should all kind of monitor, cheer for you and help if we can with, with your work because... What I like about your project is that it's explicitly good AI because yeah. there's lots of projects that are AI and, and I'm, I'm very concerned about those, to be honest with you, especially the ones that are funded by organizations like DARPA or even ones that are even much more secret than that and usually funded by military money. Uh, so, so I honestly hope you guys succeed first so you have the first mover advantage rather than someone working at the military lab top secret and, and usually designed to kill in one way or another. Uh, so that's kind of my two cents and why I prefer to cheer for you than anyone else out there, because I think that's the crucial difference that may make a difference not only for us individual or for you as a company, but for our civilization in general, in fact. Uh, that's how important I think it is. All right. So, Mare Krosa, thank you very much for being with us today. Thank you, Nicola. Thank you and goodbye. If you guys enjoy this show, you can help me make it better in a couple of ways. You can go and write a review on iTunes or you can simply make a donation.